0: you've got a Bible, would you grab it? We're going to start our time of teaching. We're in the book of Exodus, which is the second book in the Bible. So um, you can Google that. It'll be in Exodus chapter 18. We're going to look at the whole chapter today. We've been walking through this really central story to the people of God. And uh, we've been seeing how even the advent, the coming of Jesus that we sang in in the first song, um, is really what the Exodus is all about, that we worship and serve and praise a God who delivers, and he ultimately delivered all of humanity through the person and work of Jesus Christ, God the Son come in the flesh. And so uh, we're going to be back in that story today, and we get to look at a really uh, cool passage about Jethro, you know who Jethro is, great rocker, also fantastic father-in-law. So... Okay, there's a reason why there's so many movies and jokes about in-laws, because in-laws are always challenging. And so we get to look at Moses' in-law, Jethro. And Jethro is a, a very interesting uh, character. Um, I hope that this passage, if nothing else, just encourages you. If, if you are married and you have in-laws, or one day you become married, and so you have in-laws... I hope this passage encourages encourages you to cultivate deep relationships with your in-laws. We're going to see Moses' relationship with Jethro. And I've got in-laws. I'm married. I've got in-laws. And I've had the opportunity to cultivate relationship with my in-laws. And I'm I'm so glad that I have. In fact, I I referenced a book a couple weeks ago about a book called How the Irish Saved Civilization. Now, the funny story about that book is The reason I've got a copy of that book is is my father-in-law, Ed, loves uh, Irish history. He loves visiting Ireland. And uh, so I saw this book, I heard about this book, and I said, i got to get this for my father-in-law. Why? Because I've cultivated a relationship with him. I know that he loves historical books about Ireland. And so I bought him this book, and I brought it to him, and I wrapped it up myself, wrapped it up, beautiful wrap job, no bow, that's a waste of money, but just the wrap, And I think it was a Christmas wrap, so there were a lot of Christmas themes, and I brought him the book. This was like a month ago. And I brought him the book, and I said, Ed, I got you this gift. I'm very excited about this. He opens the gift, and he looks at me and he says, Dave, I already own this book. I'm reading it right now. So I said... One, that makes me very happy because I know you well, Ed. We've got a good relationship. And two, I said, I'll keep this book and we'll read it together. And you've already experienced some of the blessings that I'm also reading this book with my father-in-law, Ed. I shared it in a sermon, some really cool stories about the Irish and Irish monks and all all that jazz. So um, so I have cultivated this relationship with my father-in-law. But this is hard. It's not easy to do. And we'll get to read about this very... Sweet encounter between Moses and his father-in-law, Jethro. And I think it's fair to say that having a good relationship with your in-laws, whether it's your father-in-law or your mother-in-law, it's only possible, I think it is only possible to have a truly good relationship with the intercession of the Holy Spirit. Meaning that both parties are seeking God and bringing it into the relationship. And if God is a part of that, you can have a beautiful relationship with your in-laws. I just got to tell you, without that, I, I don't know if it's possible. I think you can only have sort of the meet the Fockers um, trope in your relationship. I, I really do. And so I want to encourage you, Just this is not really what the sermon's about, but I just want to encourage you, if you have in-laws, press into that relationship. It will be hard at times. You will want to distance yourself. But if you press in, in the way Moses presses in, And the way Jethro presses in, if you press in and you can create a beautiful relationship with your in-laws, it will be, could it be, one of the greatest witnesses to a world that only has the ideas of movies like Meet the Fockers as what in-law relationship is. And they look at your relationship and they'll say, wait, what? You buy books for your father-in-law? You you do book studies together? You talk on the phone? What is it? And the answer is The intercession of the Spirit of Christ working in our relationship. I believe it could be one of the greatest witness opportunities. So we get to read about Jethro and Moses and their very beautiful relationship. That's what we'll do today. And so there'll be three questions that I'll try to tackle in our time. Number one, should I actively seek the conversion of my family members? Have you ever asked that question? Should I actively seek the conversion to Christianity of my family? Family members. Number two, should I appropriate worldly wisdom into my life as a Christian? Should I use the wisdom of the world or wisdom that I glean from those outside of the community of God in my walk as a Christian? That's question two. Question three, should I take responsibility in the local church or local community? Those are the three questions that we will try to answer today from this text. So, I'm going to read us the entire chapter 18, the entire story here about Jethro coming to meet now the people of God who have been freed from slavery in Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. They're now at Mount Sinai where they'll stay for a while. And one of the very first things that happens once they get there is Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, meeting them? So let me read it. Chapter 18, then we'll pray, and then we'll try to answer these three questions. Ready? Here we go. Exodus 18. Jethro, the priest of Midian, so he's a high-powered dude, he was an important figure in his community, Moses' father-in-law heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel His people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. So, let me pause. Jethro had already heard all of these things, probably because he lived on some type of uh, caravan uh, route through the Sinai Peninsula. That's where they are. And so travelers would have come. And did you hear about the plagues that came upon Egypt? people are saying that it was the God of these Israelite slaves who brought those plagues. And, and did you hear about the crossing of the Red Sea? Jethro had heard all of this secondhand from these travelers who had probably preceded Moses. Moses moved a little bit slower than the average caravan because he's got thousands upon thousands of people caravanning with him. So, so Jethro had heard about these things. He'd heard the stories. Could they be true, he thought. Verse 2. Now Jethro, Moses' father in law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one son was Gershom, for he said, This is Moses said this, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Remember Moses' story? He grew up in the royal palace, but then he sees the plight of his true people. And he murders a man in anger, and he's forced to flee. And this is where he meets Zipporah, his wife, and Jethro, his his, uh, not-yet-father-in-law. He gets married into the family. They have two kids, but he was a sojourner in the land. That's why he named his first son Gershom. And the name of the other son is Eliezer. For he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. So he's got these two sons. But apparently, Moses, when he was going back to Egypt to begin the deliverance that God had called him to, because he was like going to war, he sent his wife and two sons back to Jethro for safekeeping. He understood. He was going up against the greatest emperor, the greatest empire in the world. It could be dangerous. And so he leaves his sons and his wife or sends them back to his father-in-law, Jethro. Jethro brings them in, takes care of them. He's a good father-in-law. Okay, verse 5. So Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where they were encamped at the mountain of God. That's Mount Sinai. So now Jethro hears that they've come back, and now Jethro brings Moses' wife, Zipporah, and his two sons back to Moses. And when he sent word to Moses... I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her, her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him, showed great reverence and respect. And they asked each other about their welfare and went into the tent. So they said, not just like a greeting, but like, Tell, how are you doing? Tell me how things are. They caught up with the other, and they went into the tent. They probably spent hours upon hours in there. And here's what happened. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all of the hardships that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel. And in that, he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, "Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because it is this affair they dealt uh, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people." And Jethro's Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders, or with God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Okay, so the next day, verse 13, the next day, Moses sat to judge the people. So this is a common practice. Moses, as the leader of the people, would sit um, like a judge would and, and people would bring cases before him and Moses would hear and he would adjudicate and he would say, he would make verdicts and, and, and bring peace to the people when they had controversy. So Moses was doing that. He sat to judge the people and the people stood around Moses from morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that, was, that, that, that he was doing for the people, Jethro said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone And all the people stand around you from morning till evening. Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. They know that I have special spiritual wisdom given to me by God, so they come asking for me to speak on behalf of God in these matters. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. So verse 17, Moses' father-in-law said to him, what are you doing or what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them Know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place men over people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of tens. He's basically saying of different size groups. These aren't necessarily the exact numbers, but he's saying different population sizes, there should be different levels of court that can be held. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you. So if there's something that raises up to more importance, they can bring it to you. He's like the Supreme Court, basically, is what he's saying. But you don't need to be dealing with all these matters yourself. So it will be easier for you, Jethro says, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. It'll be good for you, and it'll be good for them, Jethro says. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of Israel and made, it, uh, made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, and they judged the people at all times. In hard cases, they brought to Moses. But any small matter, they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father in law depart and he went away to his country. So then Jethro ends up going back to his hometown. So let me pray real quick and ask God to illuminate this and help us answer these three questions. Father, we thank you for this community, we thank you for this wisdom that you've passed down to us through the scriptures. God, would you help us to hear it well and apply it to our own lives, to our own community? in our own world and society and culture in which we live. God, would you bring these things to life for us now so that they might lead us to life which is found in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so question number one that I think this chapter of Exodus helps us to answer. Should I seek the conversion of my family members? Now, I use this word conversion even though I know it's not a popular word, but what we have here in Jethro is a man who was a priest, and many scholars believe a high priest of the gods of Midian, and he now is worshiping, he's converted his worship, he's transferred his worship to the worship of Yahweh. So don't think of the worst thoughts you can think about the word conversion, but what we're really Asking here is, if we have family members who worship some other God or no God at all, should we seek to help them turn their worship to the one true God that we worship and we sing about, Yahweh and his son Jesus Christ? Is that something we should do? If you've never asked that question, you either have an entire family who are already Christians or you're avoiding a very important question, and here we have an example of Moses and his father-in-law, okay? So what can we glean from this uh, chapter? I think that the answer we get, was Moses consciously seeking to convert Jethro to faith in the one true God, Yahweh? The answer is absolutely. Absolutely. And if he wasn't, how unloving would that be? Moses has just witnessed and spoken with A God who supernaturally and powerfully defeated the greatest empire in the world through these supernatural plagues, through the parting of the Red Sea, through the bringing of manna from heaven and water out of rocks and quail from the heavens. He's seen it firsthand. How could he not want his father-in-law to know about this God and to worship him? He's seen what happens when you worship other gods. So I think Moses absolutely wants to convert his father in law to the worship of Yahweh. And that's why he probably spends hours upon hours in this tent of meeting, talking to his father in law, recounting all that's happened. And probably what happens is like the first draft of what we have here in this book. Everything that we've read from chapter 4 all the way to now, chapter 18, Moses was recounting. In oral story form to his father-in-law. All the things that Yahweh had done. And why wouldn't he? Of course he would. He'd just seen it happen. So if we struggle with this question, I understand why this is a hard question. Should, should I try to share about Jesus to my family members? Particularly maybe my in-laws who come from a different faith background. I get this is a sensitive issue because you've got to see them every year. <laughs> maybe. Or maybe you won't get invited back next year. But I think our, our desire and our hope and, and at the very least our prayer should be for our family members, our in-laws to come to know this God that we've encountered. And if, if we don't have that desire, perhaps we're unsure if God really has acted in history. If He really has raised Jesus from the dead. If He really is good. So if, if, if that's what's... Holding us up from sharing about all that God has done in Jesus and is doing, then then it's on us to press into these truths and become more and more confident and sure that yes, this is who Jesus is, so that we might tell our family members about him. And I realize, and it can be the most heartbreaking part of your life as a Christian when you have family members who just don't want to hear it. But that doesn't mean that we don't share. That we don't look for the opportunities, pray for the opportunities, share about what God is doing in our life, and if you don't have anything to share about what God's doing in your life, come talk to me. You're probably doing something wrong, or at least not fully engaging in the presence of God, because he will give you things to share about if you're engaging with him. So, so what we have here is, is and, and I think we can glean a few pointers on how we might do this kind of evangelism with our family members, or really with anyone. And really what we have in the story of, of Moses and Jethro is an example of the power of personal testimony, okay? The power of personal testimony. Because remember, Jethro had already heard a lot of the stories that were coming out of Egypt about what God was doing. So he'd heard of it, but he hadn't yet been convinced. But when Moses looked at him face-to-face, eye-to-eye, and told him what happened, it clicked for him. And that'll be true of of your story. "Ah, My family members, they've heard this before, but when they look you in the eye and they see that God is doing something in your life, that could be the thing that clicks. This is the power of personal testimony. So what are the things that we see in how Moses gives his personal testimony? Well, the first thing we see, look at this with me. Uh, This is in verse 8. It says, Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done. All of it. So that's the first thing. I want you to underline. All. Be thorough. You may think that you know which part of what God has done will be most... um, effective in turning the heart of your loved ones, but you might be wrong. In fact, you're probably wrong. It's probably going to be something you didn't, oh, that's the part of my story that you resonated with? I I thought you really would have, this would have done it for you. I've heard that before, but when you said this. So you don't know. So be thorough. Moses told Jethro all that the Lord had done. What else can we learn from it? Later in that verse, it goes on goes on to say um, that Moses told his father all the hardship that had come upon them in the way. All of the hardship. So we have this tendency when we share our personal testimony of God to focus on the successes, the things that got better, the way life got easier because of following Jesus. Now, that's true. Many blessings will come. 10,000 charms we sang last week. There are are so many things about following Jesus uh, that are positive and bring life. But what does Moses start with? What does he focus on? He focuses on all the hardship. The hardship is a part of the testimony as well. It's important to talk about the hardship. Remember? God, God took Israel on some hard paths. There would have been easier ways, but God chose to take them down this way, where there was trouble. And Moses isn't scared to share that either, that there's hardship. Share the hardships. And there's a couple reasons why. Moses will go on to say, I shared with him the hardship and how the Lord had delivered Israel. So to understand the true hardship and the true nature of, of the the enemies that we come up against and how God delivers us even from those is to tell a true story about God. But not only that, when when we fail to share of the hardships, what we're actually doing is we might be converting people to a form of Christianity that's untrue. Like, be careful what people are saved into. If you're saved into like a Joel Osteen type of Christianity that says, come to God and he'll give you everything your heart desires, you're saving them into a false gospel. That is not what God says. Jesus says, come, follow me, pick up your cross. It's going to be a hard road, full of blessing and delight, but it ain't going to be easy. So we want to be careful that when we're sharing our personal testament, we're not painting a picture of what following Jesus is actually like share about all the hardships too. And then Moses says, and how God has delivered us. So important, lest we lead a new believer into thinking that God will not allow his people to face trial and danger. Now, the third thing that we see in Moses' testimony is that he is recounting things very close to the events that have just happened. So there hasn't been a long gap between what God has done and Moses sharing it with Jethro. I think this is a lesson that we can take as well. When God does something, talk about it. (laughs) Talk about it early and often. You say, I don't know if it's sunk in all the way. Actually talking about what God is doing in your life will solidify, help you to see it more clearly and help you to learn how to talk about it because you're close to the events. Now you might share that same thing as Moses did over and over and over again for 40 years, Moses did this. But, but to have that first draft of trying to tell people what God's doing, great lesson here. When God does something in your life, share about it. This is often why people that are new to the faith are some of the most powerful evangelists. Because they've just experienced the power of God in their life. So if you're new to the faith, if you've recently come to convert your worship from something else to Jesus, don't, don't think you've got to wait to share your... Share it now. It's the most fresh and the most powerful the closer it is to the events. So, uh, in Moses sharing this with Jethro, seems to be the first time he shared it with somebody outside of the community of Israel. There's so much power. And we see the results. So, what's Jethro's response? Look at verse 9. Jethro's response is this. Jethro rejoiced for all the good that Yahweh had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. So this, this word rejoice can also be delight. It can translate a delight. He delighted. See, that's why we share with our family members what God is doing. If they see it for what it is, delight should be their response. Now, we can't manufacture that response. All we can do is manufacture the words to express what God has done. But when they actually hear, when God gives them ears to hear, it's delight. Jethro delights. Look what he says in verse 11. He says, now I know that Yahweh, that's in your Bible when you see Lord in all capitals. That's actually the personal name Yahweh. We talked about that earlier in the series in Exodus. You go back and listen. That's God's given us his personal name. Call me Yahweh, which means I am that I am. So now Jethro is talking about God in the personal form. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods. This is no small thing. Because remember who Jethro is. He's not just Moses' Moses' father-in-law. He is a priest of Midian, might be the high priest, meaning the highest ranking spiritual figure in his tribal community. And his job has been to lead people into the worship of other gods. And he is saying, now I know that Yahweh is greater than all these other so-called gods. I was wrong. And he might lose his job. And he might lose his rank. And he might lose his status. Who knows what will happen to him? But everything he might have to give up pales in comparison to knowing the almighty, powerful, creator, omniscient God of the universe. And he sees it and he says, it's all worth it because now I know Yahweh. And so he delights in his conversion to Yahwehism. You see, when... When you share the good news about who God is and that you have access to him through Jesus Christ, through his blood and resurrection, and now there's no barrier between you and God, and you can experience your forgiveness from your guilt and your shame, and you can experience life everlasting and resurrection, that is the best news anyone can hear. And when they actually hear it, they don't think about what they're giving up. And so we should share and we should seek and it should be our heart's desire that all of our family members come to know this God that we have come to know. Moses knew that and, he, and Jethro got it. And so he delighted even though it meant a complete reorientation of his life and his profession and his standing in the society. So what does Jethro do? He enacts his conversion. So we see four signs of Jethro's conversion to Christianity. Well, what would become Christianity, what is Yahwehism, the worship of Yahweh, the one true God. First, he acknowledges with his lips that Yahweh is the one true God. That's the same of people who would be moving and converting from the worship of one thing to the worship of Jesus. We acknowledge with our lips that Jesus is Lord. We see... Jethro, do that. I know now that Yahweh is the God of gods. Number two, he praises with new love and affection Yahweh. So you see him delighting and praising. So that's what happens when somebody truly converts to Christianity. They acknowledge with their lips, and you see the delight of their worship. Number three, we see this as well. Jethro, it's, it says, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices, this is verse 12, to God. So there's an altar set up there where the Israelites had been offering sacrifices, which is very common in the ancient Near East, as a way of symbolizing their devotion to Yahweh. And now Jethro says, I am now going to bring a sacrifice, an offering to Yahweh, because he is now my God. So for us as Christians, if somebody's going to convert from some worship of something else to the worship of Christianity, uh, we symbolize this through baptism. This is the way that we would symbolize. No longer need for offerings and sacrifices because Jesus is our sacrifice, but we acknowledge our attachment to him through the ceremony of baptism. We're going to be having a baptism this summer. If you're interested in baptism, tell us. You can fill that out on the website. We'd love to let you symbolize that you are giving your life, sacrificing your life to Jesus through the ceremony of baptism. It's going to be happening in July of this year. Number four, we see Jethro eat a meal with the elders of Israel. So Aaron, who is uh, Moses' his right-hand man, and the elders of Israel, they get together and they have a covenant meal with Jethro, a, a fellowship symbolizing that Jethro is now a part of the community and the family of faith in Israel, Okay. What's that like? That's like, we'll celebrate this later today. That's like communion. It's a covenant meal that we eat together that Jesus said, eat this in remembrance of me with all the family of God to remind us that we're a part of a covenant faith family. And Jethro did that with the elders of Israel to symbolize that he was entering the family. So here we have a great illustration of somebody from outside the family of God, the worship of some other religion, some other God who hears about the good news of Jesus through the personal, powerful personal testimony of his son-in-law Moses and is invited in to the new family and his eternity is changed forever. May it be so in our community that this is happening again and again and again. Maybe you're here today because somebody has invited you to hear about the mighty works of God. welcome. Come in. Join the family of faith at Sedaris. Join us in the worship of Yahweh and his son Jesus Christ. Join us. Just as Jethro joined Moses and the people of Israel. It's beautiful. So, that's the first thing. Okay. A lot to cover in one chapter here. I love Jethro. Second question. Should... You appropriate or use worldly wisdom in your life as a Christian. Very important question. Again, if you're not asking this question, you should be. <laughs> That's what we're talking about it today. Should you and how do you use worldly wisdom, that is wisdom gleaned from outside of the community of believers, in your life as a Christian? And the answer of should is yes. The question of how is very carefully. Let me talk about this. Look at verse 17. So right after this covenant meal, it says in verse 13, the next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning until evening. And Moses' father-in-law sees this and says, oh my goodness, my son-in-law is going to be wiped out. He doesn't have enough energy for this. The community is only growing. He can't do this. His father-in-law sees it. And look at verse 17, what he says. So Moses' father-in-law said To him, he says, come here, Moses. Moses, come here. I don't want to embarrass you. Come here. Let's go. Maybe let's go back into the tent. Listen. And this is what Moses' father-in-law says. What you are doing is not good. Uh, And Moses says, excuse me? I'm, I'm I'm the leader of this community? I talk to God personally? Jethro reiterates, no. Moses, it's not good what you're doing. At which point every, every wife in that's listening online or here is saying to themselves, that sounds like my mother-in-law. <laughs> every single one of you. I know it is. That sounds like my mother-in-law. This is a common, this is a common refrain from in-laws everywhere. Uh, what you are doing is not good. <laughs> now the question is, is Jethro right? Is your mother-in-law right? Is your father-in-law right? And the amazing wisdom that we then hear from Jethro through the rest of verse 17, Moses realizes he is right. God has used somebody other than Moses, who has a direct connection with God, to speak wisdom to Moses that then Moses appropriates into the leading of God's people that leads to life for the people and life for Moses. It's a beautiful picture of Moses taking, now yes, Jethro has become a part of the community, but the wisdom he shares is wisdom that he has developed in his life as a Midianite worshiper. So it's worldly wisdom, but God then uses it and shares it with Moses to lead the people of God. And this has happened through the history of the church over and over again, that that the church has looked at wisdom from the world and appropriated it in the building of the kingdom of God. So we should Listen to the advice and the wisdom of outsiders, but we should do it very discerningly. So like when I was in grad school, they used to tell me over and over again, listen, you know, I never did this, but clearly people were doing this. They'd always say when we'd write our papers and we'd cite, they'd say, please, please stop citing Wikipedia. (laughs) It is not a scholarly source. Don't do it. Now, what they're not saying is that there's no truth or no wisdom on Wikipedia, They're just saying, please, not in your grad papers at seminary. So we can use the wisdom of Wikipedia, but we just have to use it discerningly. Maybe we look at the sources in Wikipedia to find the original, and we go and we cite that. (laughs) That's okay. But the same is true in life. Perhaps you hear good wisdom or good advice from outside of the church. How are we to discerningly bring it into the life of believers? I'm going to give you a checklist. And this checklist will hopefully help you become a wise person because that's the goal of the Christian life when it comes to wisdom. Not just that we would hold wise positions, but that we would be wise people. There's a difference there. Someone can tell you this is a wise position and you can hold it. That's not the same as being a wise person and being able to hear wisdom from all sources and discern Is this truly wise? I want you to be able to discern it for yourself. I could just sit here and tell you, this is what I think are wise positions to hold, wise ways to think, wise ways to act. I'd rather you become a wise person. So here's a checklist. This is how to test worldly wisdom so that you might know if I should appropriate it and use it in my life. So the first thing you need to know with any wisdom that you get, whether it's from within or outside of the community of faith, Uh, Because, to be honest, there are people within the community of faith who are going to give you terrible advice. So, the first thing you ask is I must discern the messenger. Discern the messenger. And the first step to that is to ask this question Is the messenger giving me advice with an ulterior motive? So, do they have another agenda? Do they have an ideological agenda, a political agenda, a profit agenda, a control agenda? And are you discerning enough to be able to tell if they have other agendas? If you're not discerning enough, you need to grow in that discernment, you might bring that wisdom to someone else that you trust and say, hey, I've got a, I've got a parent, for instance, who's giving me some advice. Now, now, you should always be discerning when your parents give you advice because their advice typically... <laughs> is going to be for you to move closer to them on the same block (laughs) and to adjust your schedule to theirs. Okay, so that's just typically what I've... Why does all parental wisdom seem to be that for most of us younger professionals? Okay. Now, that's not necessarily wrong, but is there ulterior motive? Now, we all know examples of this in our world today. So the second thing we ask... Is the messenger willing to consider what we have to share as well? So if somebody comes to you only with advice, only with wisdom, and they don't care anything of what you have to share, then I think you pause. doesn't necessarily mean their wisdom isn't good. But look at Jethro. Jethro was willing to sit in a tent with his son-in-law, who he has much more age and experience on, and he's willing to listen to Moses talk for hours about what God has done. So he's clearly willing to consider, not just share, his own thoughts. So there's real communication. And what you're trying to do in this scenario is you're trying to discern, does this person have humility? Because you should be very weary of taking advice and counsel for somebody that lacks humility. If they think they know it all, if they think they've figured out the way the world is and their way is perfect, that's not humility. So we're discerning humility. Are they willing to listen to you? Are they willing to hear you share? And particularly when you're um, talking with someone who is not yet a part of the family of faith, are they willing to consider how important your faith in Jesus is, how important your Christian faith is? Life is to you. If they're not, they seem to just, eh, stop talking about that. Don't bring that into this. I'd just be very weary. They're not displaying humility. This is the second point. Second in the checklist. So, uh, th- th- can I see, is there ulterior motive? If I can't answer n- uh, no to that, then I might pause. Are they willing to, to listen and consider what's important to me and my faith? If, if they're not, eh, more pause. The third thing. Can I confirm the message itself? Okay? There's two parts to this. Can I confirm the message itself? Now, you won't always be able to confirm perfectly if I follow this wisdom what will happen, but you could confirm that, that, that there's efficacy to this wisdom applied elsewhere. So Jethro could have come to Moses and say, Listen, this is how we have done it in our community, and it's worked. And look, look at me, I even have leave for my responsibilities to come with your daughter and your sons to Mount Sinai, because, and the community doesn't fall apart because I leave. So there's, you see, there's efficacy to the wisdom, because Jethro has applied it in his own life. It's not just an idea, but there's applied results. And the second part of that is, does this wisdom, when I'm confirming the message, does it contradict... Any direct or indirect commands of God. So, how do I know that? <laughs> okay? So, does the wisdom itself contradict anything that God has said, directly or indirectly? I have to look to Scripture. I have to know the Scriptures. So, if I don't know the Scriptures very well, I might bring this advice to somebody who knows it a little bit better than me, somebody in the community who's been walking with the Lord longer, maybe a pastor, maybe your cohort leader. Somebody who could say, hey, this is what so-and-so has said, does that contradict with anything the Bible teaches, either directly or indirectly? If so, I shouldn't move forward. If not, then I might ask the next question. Has it contradicted anything that God has personally revealed to me? So God, first and foremost, speaks through his word. It would be called, this is, this is to all believers, but then he'll also give you specific revelation. Saying like, I talked about this uh, last week. David, I want you to go plant a church in Seattle. Well, guess what? I got lots of people giving me the wisdom. That's a bad idea. And I said, you're probably right, except that advice contradicts what I'm hearing from God. So I got ask, is that what God's telling me? Now, there's one very specific example of um, some of you, and especially if you're new, you're like, how do you say the name of this church? <laughs> What? No, no. Sidaris. And when I was going around um, finding people to donate, invest in the building of this church, many times, wise people that would have checked the box on, on all of these things, no ulterior motive, willing to consider, they'd come to these vision nights and I would, I would tell them, I'd give them the pitch, this is what we're trying to do, this is what God's called us to do. And they'd have great wisdom, but then I, and then I asked, does it contradict? The thing I heard over and over again is, listen, you got to change the name. <laughs> it's a terrible name. Nobody knows how to spell it. How are they going to find it online when somebody says to them, uh, you should check out this church, sidaris They might be right in every other instance, except I wholeheartedly believe that God has given us this name as a church. That this is a direct revelation from God. This is what I want you to call the church. And so even though it might contradict the worldly wisdom of, you know, call it something generic so that it's easy to remember, easy to spell, because God had given me this direct revelation, we said, you know, very humbly, I think we're going to keep it Sedaris. Now, I cannot go back and, and say, well, where would Sidaris be if we had named it something like Wallingford Church? I don't know. But my conscience said, good wisdom, good people, you can trust them, but God's given you this command, this revelation. You'll have that in your life, and that's okay. So the fourth thing, once you've gone through all that checklist, you have to ask yourself, are you willing to take and apply this wisdom with a kingdom mindset and motivation Or will you be too tempted and overwhelmed with a worldly definition of success and mindset, which is the mindset, and at least in this country, bigger, stronger, more power, more control, to use that wisdom in the right way. So you might go through the whole checklist, and then you get to the end, you realize, I don't don't have the self-control in me to use this wisdom and apply it in a kingdom mindset. Because what you see over and over again is that the kingdom mindset of Jesus Christ is different than the world's mindset. You can use worldly wisdom that can become kingdom of Jesus Christ oriented, but it's not the same thing. And where I want to go to show you that is Luke chapter 22. So at at the first Last Supper, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, this is my body, this is my blood, when, when, when they were sitting at that Last Supper before Jesus went and was arrested and then ultimately crucified. Um, They're sitting around the table and Jesus has just instituted the Lord's Supper and he's just said, I'm going to give my body and my blood for you. And, And then Jesus has just said, but one of you will betray me. This is the very next thing that Jesus says after he's just said, one of you will literally sell me down the river. And I think they're connected. Meaning Luke wants us to see both are pretty bad. In fact, very bad. So this is Luke, Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verse 24 says this. Then a dispute, they're sitting around the table, Jesus had just said these amazing things about what he would do for them, and a dispute arose also among them, that's the twelve disciples, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over you and over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and let the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? The answer is obviously, one who reclines at table. Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among among you as the one who serves. What is Jesus saying? It's upside down. My kingdom is upside down. You don't get it. Even after I've said I'm going to give my life to die for you, you don't get it. My kingdom is not of this world. It's upside down. I am the one who serves, not the one who reclines. Verse 28, and you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus says, listen guys. You're going to get all this wisdom, including this wisdom that you think it's better to recline than to serve. And you're going to be challenged again and again to pick up that worldly wisdom and use it. Even in, the, in my name, you'll have that temptation. But he says, if you can't do it, don't pick it up. Do not use the worldly wisdom to build a worldly kingdom. Only use wisdom from the world if it's to build my upside-down kingdom because I've already got a kingdom and I'm gonna give it to you and you're gonna judge. So don't ask who's gonna be the greatest, ask who gets to serve. And so this is just a reminder to us that as we try to understand what of the world and the world's wisdom should we appropriate into our life, just remember that Jesus' kingdom is upside-down It's completely different. And if we don't get that, we should be very, very cautious to pick up worldly wisdom and start applying it to our lives because Jesus' way is so much different than the world's way. Okay, fifth part of the checklist. Are you willing to abandon the wisdom if it proves to be unhelpful? Unhelpful to what? Unhelpful to the building of God's kingdom. Not your own kingdom. But if you start to see, oh my gosh, all the attention, like, I'm just saying say as a pastor, because this is how I, if all the attention's on me, if I become the show, if I become the reason people come to church, if I become, if people start calling Sedaris Church Dave's church, I got to say, am I willing to abandon the wisdom that God's given me previously so that the kingdom of God is built, not my own? See how this could r- run its course in, politics, even starting a business, even in your own household, are you willing to abandon the wisdom that might bring you worldly success if you realize it's not bringing kingdom success? You've got to ask all those questions over and over and over again. And if you do, if you learn how to do that, you can become a wise person. And not just hold wise positions. Now, I've got a whole great example here about the wisdom of the world in the last year and how I think many of us absorb it and take it in undiscerningly and therefore fall prey to ulterior motives, to unwise wisdom. And you know what? I don't have time to share it. (laughs) I don't have time to share it. Perhaps it's the wisdom of God saying, don't share that. (laughs) If you want to talk about that, give me a call. We'll talk about it. There's been all sorts of examples in the last year of worldly wisdom that if appropriated and used unwisely by spirit-filled people will lead you into either destructive action Divisive action, splitting up the people of God, splitting up families, splitting up relationships, ending friendships, if it's not ingested wisely. Doesn't mean there's not wisdom. Just have to be wise to bring it in. Moses does it with Jethro's advice, and let's look what happens. Let's look what happens. Third question, should I take responsibility in the local church? The answer is yes. Because Jethro's advice to Moses is this. Listen, Moses, you can't do it alone. You'll burn yourself out and the people will be restless. The people will be so restless. It's right here in the text. The people, look at, look at verse 23. If you do this, God will direct you and you will be able to endure. You won't burn out, Jethro says. And all this people... Also, will go to their place in peace. Jethro's saying, Listen, you trying to hold it all on your own shoulders, one, it's not gonna work because you'll burn yourself out and then you'll be no good to those people. Two, those people have to wait so long, night and day, probably days on end, to get their hearing before you because there's only one of you. And so they're not in peace. In fact, they're frustrated, you're exhausted, and Jethro's basically saying, the great wisdom that I think we have rightly appropriated in our day and age, which is basically this. Justice delayed is justice denied. Jethro saying that 3,500 years ago. He says, Moses, you got to figure out a way so that justice can take root and hold in your community and everyone doesn't have to wait on you. And so this great judicial structure... And this nomadic people who have just traveled, just three months in, God delivers through an outsider, Jethro, wisdom that leads to life and flourishing in the judicial system of early Israel. With these levels of courts, Moses reigning in the Supreme Court, but justice flowing down like a river to every part of the community. It's beautiful. And it's teaching the principle That shared responsibility is God's model for his people. Meaning what? That each and every one of us should be asking the question, what is my responsibility in the community of God? How do I take ownership of justice and goodness in the community of God? How do I do it? Because the wisdom that Jethro gives and the wisdom that you see then again and again throughout This book of Exodus and throughout the entire Bible is that the people of God should be a people of shared responsibility. I'm no different to God than you're to God. God is our high judge, and so he can distribute his authority to bring justice into his community through any of us. Different people will hold different responsibilities, there's different Groups of people that Moses puts as judges over the people. Different sizes of groups. But people have shared responsibility. We have responsibility to one another. So the answer is yes. You should take on responsibility in the local church, in your local community. And you must ask God and ask the structures of the community that you're part of, how can I help bring this community into flourishing Out of exhaustion into flourishing, out of frustration into joy, what can I do? Moses gets this advice from Jethro, and God gives us this advice through Jethro. Don't take it all on yourself. Let's do it together. Let's be a people of shared responsibility. And when we live this out, when this justice flows in our community... And then outside of our community, through our sharing of wisdom with the outside world, through our sharing of the good news of God, a God who saves and delivers from sin and death and injustice, then we start to see the kingdom of God take root on earth as it is in heaven. So let's do it together.